the bolt of venerable heaven, the exalted one of the gods in whom heaven trusts, Shamash, who holds the life of the land, the arm of the king of the Ti-Uruda, which is the Shu'ag of Prince Ea, the god of rejoicing, the burning light, the fiery radiance, the splendor of the Abzu, the leader among the Anuna gods. To the young men, he gave great strength and fierce Gishgana. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. I'm your host, Alex, just me today. And today we're listening to the Hymn to Shamash. This is the Akkadian sun god, the equivalent of the Sumerian sun god Utu. This text is one of the first literary works written in the Akkadian language, or a related East Semitic language. It belongs to a literary tradition centered on the kingdom of Kish, which we'll talk about today. This is written around the 2500s BCE, the same period of time we're talking about today. So because this text is so old, we can't read all of it, because certain words are written differently here than they would be in later texts that we can read more clearly. So that's why you'll hear me say the names of a lot of signs instead of English words. The text continues. The Herald of Heaven, the Kas Nimgir of Earth, Enlil, the Venerable Light, circles around. Day and night he guards the land he is in charge of, the land of Ea. So the sun god is the patron god of merchants and soldiers, as well as other travelers, because he travels across the sky, and he starts and ends at the far edges of the world. We remember in the story of Lugalbanda in the mountain cave, Utu was one of the gods that he prayed to while he was out in the wilderness, because of course Utu is, among others, the god of the wilderness. The text continues. He raised soldiers of the foreign lands. To the merchants he gave goods. The foreign lands yielded lapis lazuli and silver. The cedar forest yielded pure wood, boxwood, and cypress, exquisite emblems. So the cedar forest is the area in the far northwest, near modern Lebanon, where Gilgamesh went to fight Huwaba and cut down cedar trees to float them down the river to his hometown of Unug. It's notable that this motif already shows up in literature during the fire period. The text continues. Aromatic oil, vegetable oil, and honey. The goods of the merchants and the smoke of the gods. Juniper and almond, the products of the foreign land, he caused to be brought by his boats. Divine splendor lightens the Erin of Shamash, the courtyard of the Nigin. Enlil was joyous. He filled with lead, gold, silver, and lapis lazuli, the large courtyard of the Nigin. So Erin is the cuneiform sign for cedar. The Sumerian word that the sign refers to can mean either cedar or soldier, enemy, destruction, or evil. Again, we see a semantic connection between soldiers and the far edge of the world. It's not clear exactly which Akkadian word the sign is meant to stand for. In this context, Erin probably refers to a temple of Shamash, maybe in the city of Sippar, his main cult center. The pregnant woman, full of understanding, called Suen, the famous hero. I have heard your words, she said to the father of the land. The city of Al-Nim illuminates the lands. Divine splendor flashes up. Venerable Anzu, Mount Sharshar is quaking. He made Busar pasture the wild bulls. Of course, Suen, the famous hero, is the Akkadian moon god, corresponding to the Sumerian god Nana of Ur. And Anzu, of course, is the same mythical creature from the Lugal Banda story. The poem continues. Shamash placed a burning light upon the lands. The radiance of Shamash grazed his wild bulls in front of the mountain. On the Erin, Shamash rode to the marsh of the sea. When he came to the heights, Ashmu went out. Ashmu sat down. The lofty gods stood up. The plowmen brought the plow and delivered a platform for the assembly, a throne. In front of the Lord at his dais, he passed a house of Shamash, the lord of the land, and he left heaven. The fiery splendor of the son of Suen, the hundred Lahama Abzu were brought near to the gods, the venerable stars, the Anuna gods of venerable heaven. Shamash assembles the Anuna gods, the judges of the young men. He solves problems of great difficulty. Shamash, the river god, and Ishtaran assemble. The gods met each other, and the land listened. So clearly something is happening in the story, but I'm not sure what. 
The name of Shamash's son is written with the signs Zu Piring and Banda, and with the signs Zu Ug Banda. So the Piring and Ug signs are used interchangeably, which is interesting because one of the Enmerkar stories refers to Ug lions and Piring lions being depicted on the bed where Enmerkar has sex with the Nana. So it's not clear how the sun god's son's name is meant to be pronounced. These signs may be referring to Lugal Banda. We do know that the legendary kings of Unuk were connected with Utu, and Merkar is the grandson of Utu, in the Sumerian king list at least. So, whatever's going on, our heroes appear to be fighting the Du'u gods. Shamash rose to the fortress of Ea, to the door of the Abzu. The Du'u gods were in front of the lord, Ea, the father of Zu'ug Banda, the support of the hero. Against the Du'u gods, the preeminent youth struggled and fought. Zu'ug Banda went down to the Abzu. The gods were in pain. The Anunagad, Ea, came in venerable fire. He lifted the door. The toiling do sea of the earth he loosened. Again, it's not clear exactly what's happening, partially because we can't translate all of it, and partially because they weren't writing long narratives yet. Clearly, there's a longer story that this is just summarizing. Either way, it looks like Shamash and his allies win the contest. Shamash, who gives the orders of the land, the threshold of the hero, the heart of the door of the Abzu. He drank wine and anointed his head, adorned with his city and his offspring. His favored city is Sippar, the city of sunrise, his heroic city. The mountain of lapis lazuli sparkled with the splendor of Shamash. The heavy yoke lies on his enemies. Erin Dusa in wisdom governs one side of Sippar. Shamash in wisdom governs the other side of Sippar. Praise to Erin Dusa and Shamash. So this episode is about Kish. We've been to Kish before. It's a city in the northern Uluvium, southwest of modern Baghdad. Throughout the early dynastic period, or the early to mid-2000s BCE, it sat along the main branch of the Euphrates River directly upstream of major Sumerian cities like Shurupak, Nippur, Unuk, Uruk, and Eridu. Kish was also the center of a large and powerful kingdom. By about 2500 BCE, its population has swelled to the tens of thousands. 130 hectares of the site was actually built up, with another 100 hectares of empty space between the buildings. Two-thirds of that occupation was at Tel Ingara, the eastern mount, which they knew as Hersan Kalama, the mountain of the land of Sumer. Last time we looked at the prisoner plaque, a record of 25 victories against other settlements in the area, after which, Kish forced tens of thousands of prisoners to work on its date palm orchards. We also talked about the kingship of Kish and the early historical kings Enmebargesi and Aga, both known from legends about Gilgamesh. Today, we'll take a look at the culture of the central Mesopotamian kingdom and how far its cultural influence reached during the second half of the early dynastic period. We'll also look at the archaeology of Kish itself, its palace, its administrative building, and its burials. So after the late Uruk exchange network collapsed around 3100 BCE, Several cities that had been central nodes connecting the southern alluvium to the rest of Mesopotamia now found themselves unmoored from this international system. In central Mesopotamia, the Uruk material culture gave way to what we've called the Jemdet Nasser culture. By the mid-3rd millennium BCE, Kish would incorporate the same region into not only a single kingdom, but also a shared culture unified by language and scribal traditions. In fact, this area may have been ruled by Kish since long before the textual record begins, which may explain why the Jemdet Nasser cultural area corresponds so cleanly to the territory of the later kingdom, We'll talk about this area's culture, but first I want to define some terms. So we've defined the concept of Sumerian society before. The southern alluvium, including cities like Ur and Unug, or Uruk, spoke the Sumerian language for most of the third millennium, and possibly during the Uruk period as well. As a result, by the end of the third millennium, Mesopotamians will refer to the southern alluvium as Sumer to distinguish it from the Akkadian-speaking north. Sumerian, as far as any modern linguist can tell, is a language isolate. In other words, it's not related to any other known language. Any other languages in its family either went extinct or were absorbed into Sumerian before they could be written down. On the other hand, Akkadian is a Semitic language. In other words, the language spoken by much of northern and central Mesopotamia, later named after Sargon's capital city of Agade, is part of the same family as Amorite, Aramaic, Arabic, and Hebrew. 
To be precise, scholars disagree over whether the language spoken in the early dynastic alluvium is truly Akkadian or whether it's a closely related East Semitic language. Either way, since central Mesopotamia mostly spoke Akkadian in the 21st century BCE, Mesopotamians refer to this area as the land of Akkad, as we will too. At our point in the story, though, in the mid-third millennium BCE, there's no evidence that Sumerian speakers and Akkadian speakers saw themselves as separate peoples. Obviously, their languages were different and unrelated, but they saw the distinction between Sumer and Akkad as geographic, that is, not primarily ethnic or religious, and definitely not quote-unquote racial. The phrase black-headed people applied equally to both groups, as did the term kalam, referring to quote-unquote civilized, complex urban society, as opposed to kur, or mountain, referring to quote-unquote uncivilized, mobile herders in the mountains and plains. Sumerian texts did distinguish between the two regions. Their name for their own area, the land of Sumer, was Ki-Engi, which meant something like the land of the noble lords. They originally used the name Ki-Uri, or the land of Uri, to refer to the lower Diala region, but eventually extended it to cover all of central Mesopotamia. Uri may have been a local storm god, also worshipped under similar names like Wari, Werum, Meru, or Mer. The M and W sounds are both made with the lips touching, so it's not unlikely that different people would pronounce the same name differently. I've mentioned that the city of Mari may have been named after this god, or vice versa, since Uri appears often in the personal names of people from Mari. In fact, it's possible that Mari was first settled by migrants from the Diala region, since early dynastic inscriptions in the two areas are remarkably similar. The god's name may also be related to the name of the Amorites, known as the Martu to Sumerians and the Amuru to the Akkadians. Both words contain the MR root. The Akkadian name of this area was likely something like Warium, meaning land of the god Wari. As with the later Assyrians, who called their city, their god, their people, and their language, all by the name Ashur, the people of the land of Uri may have referred to their homeland by the name of their primary god. Speaking of gods, Semitic-speaking peoples across northern Mesopotamia appear to have shared something of a Semitic pantheon. Later on, these would be identified with Sumerian gods, much as each of the Roman gods would eventually be identified with their Greek counterparts. So by the end of the third millennium, we could say that the Semitic god Ishtar corresponded to the Sumerian goddess Inanna, or the Semitic sun god Shamash to the Sumerian Utu, or the wisdom god Ea to Enki, or the storm god Hadad to Ishkur, and so on. However, since the vast majority of our written texts were produced after centuries of exchange between these two peoples, it's hard to be sure which god started off with which attributes. As I mentioned last time, Kish had two major temple complexes, one to its city god, Zababa, probably a local Semitic god, and another to Ishtar, which may have been founded in connection with the Uruk expansion, you know, to the extent that the Uruk expansion was a colonization of the rest of Mesopotamia by the city-state of Unug. It makes sense that these colonists would build other temples of their city goddess in their various colonies. Semitic-speaking peoples also had their own calendrical system, separate from the one developed by bureaucrats during the Uruk period. It wasn't standardized, but different Semitic-speaking settlements apparently shared the same basic system of naming months, since it was probably easier to keep time by watching the moon than it was to keep track of a 360-day calendar like in the south. Either way, whether because of Sumerian colonization during the Uruk period, or because of contact with contemporary Sumerian city-states, the culture of Akkad, or Ki-Uri, or Wariam, was heavily influenced by Sumerian culture. Their language incorporated lots of Sumerian loanwords. For example, the Sumerian word for basket, Dubshik, was borrowed into Akkadian as Tupshiku, and it appears in the name of a man from Ebla whose name was written Dab Si Ga. This East Semitic language, with a significant number of Sumerian loanwords, would form the basis of the later Babylonian language, which is a dialect of Akkadian spoken by the descendants of the Sumerians after about 2000 BCE. You'll notice I have not used the name Babylonia much yet, but it basically refers to central and southern Mesopotamia. In other words, after another 500 years, Babylonia will incorporate both Sumer and Akkad, with a culture incorporating both cultural traditions. If you're familiar with later periods, you can think of the land of Akkad as quote-unquote northern Babylonia. More relevant to our purposes, though, in addition to sharing a language and a culture with the rest of central and northern Mesopotamia, the kingdom of Kish also seems to have exported a scribal tradition. 
Just as Ur and Shurpak inherited a tradition of lexical texts that began in the Uruk period Unug, northern cities like Mari and Ebla inherited a quote-unquote northern tradition, which likely began at Kish, or at least was disseminated by Kish. We'll talk more about these lexical texts when we get to Abu Salabik. In addition to aspects of scribal education, details in some of these texts appear to point to an origin in the kingdom of Kish. For example, an early version of the Kesh Temple Hymn, which we'll close with today, refers to the king of Kish performing rituals in the city of Kesh with an E, likely because he controlled that city at the time. Later versions will remove the explicit reference to Kish, probably because Kish no longer controlled Kesh with an E. Like other literary texts of the scribal tradition, this text appears to have used cuneiform to write in the Akkadian language instead of in Sumerian. These texts appear as far south as Abu Salabik in the north-central Alluvium, and as far away as Ebla in northwestern Syria, at the far northern edge of the Mesopotamian world. We barely have any text from Kish itself during this period, but because of its political primacy and the content of these texts, academics refer to these texts as the quote-unquote Kish tradition or Kish civilization. One of these Kish tradition texts is the so-called List of Geographic Names, or LGN. We have 10 copies of this text from Abu Salabik around 2500 BC, and one version from Ebla in Syria around 2300 BCE. The ancient title of this text was Cities, which in cuneiform is written Uru-Uru, or the sign for city, twice. As the title implies, it's a list of almost 300 settlements accessible from Kish, some in the north, some in the east, and some in nearby parts of the Alluvium. Many academics interpret the LGN as a list of cities in Kish's sphere of influence, just as the prisoner plaque was a list of cities conquered by Kish. The place names are arranged in the order that one would encounter them along rivers, canals, or overland trade routes. In other words, similar to the much later Periplus of the Erythraean Sea, it may have served as an itinerary for traveling merchants or diplomats, listing the cities they would pass as they traveled along a particular route. Douglas Frayne divided the text into 17 sections, each corresponding to a geographical region, including between 5 and 30 settlements. In this sense, the text may have functioned as a kind of subway map. It wasn't an exact visual representation of the region, as most modern maps are, but it did show all of the stops on a particular route. This would have allowed travelers to check their progress and make sure they hadn't gone too far. It's unclear whether Kish ruled all these settlements as subject territories, or whether some of them were more accurately described as allies or trade partners. Two sites on the nearby Kishkatum Canal begin with the phonetic writing, Sat, followed by the cuneiform signs, Nin and Dumunita, respectively, meaning belonging to the queen and belonging to the son, as in male child. Given similar naming conventions in later periods, it's unclear whether these refer to the households of the queen and crown prince of Kish, or to the temple houses of two different deities. For example, in pre-Sargonic Lagash, the household of the king's heirs were part of the queen's household complex, the Ami, literally the house of the woman, but the queen's household was inextricable from the temple household of the city goddess Bawa. So in the case of Lagash, the quote-unquote house of the queen was both the literal house of the mortal human queen and the temple of the quote-unquote queen of the city. The version of the LGN from Ebla uses more syllabic writing and fewer signs meant to represent entire words than its counterparts from the Illuvium do. In other words, whereas the same cuneiform sign could stand for a Sumerian word in Sumer and an Akkadian word in the north, the text from Ebla spells out more words phonetically in Akkadian, or again, a closely related language. Just as the first phonetic writing at Ur marks the first certain use of Sumerian, these Akkadian words, written phonetically at Ebla, show that scribes not only spoke Akkadian, but wrote their text in it, and expected them to be read in Akkadian and not Sumerian. As you might expect, most of the Sumerian cities named in the LGN are from the northern Alluvium. Farthest south is the town of Kisura, whose name means border. It may have marked the southern border, dividing Kish's kingdom from the territory of Sumerian city-states. Notably, Shurupak, which may have been part of a Sumerian city leak, as we talked about, is just south of Kisura, and it doesn't appear in the LGN. The southernmost major city is Isin, which will rule much of this area in the Middle Bronze Age. About 30 kilometers to the north is Nippur, which may have already served as the religious capital of southern Mesopotamia, as it would in later periods. We'll visit Nippur during this period fairly soon. 
The LGN also names the city of Eresh, home of the goddess Nisaba. We'll talk about Eresh again soon, but this is one of those cities, like Kesh with an E, where we know a fair amount about a city from texts, but we don't know exactly where that city was located. In other words, we know that there was a major Sumerian city called Eresh in the north-central Alluvium, but we're not sure which archaeological site it corresponds to. In fact, there may have been two settlements named Eresh, this one and one closer to Uma, farther south, but there's only one major city. It follows that we should find a major archaeological site whose ancient name we don't know, and the obvious candidate for Eresh is Abu Salabik, which again we'll visit next time. Closer to home, I mentioned Jemdet Nasser, which is another archaeological site with an unknown ancient name. This was obviously the type site for the Jemdet Nasser culture, and it was occupied into the early dynastic period. Since Jemdet Nasser is not far north of Kish, and because it was occupied during the early days of its kingdom, it may appear in the LGN under the name Gi Mas Mas. Moving north, the text mentions Akshak, near where the Diala River meets the Tigris. A city, written with the sign Ash and the phonetic Na'ak, might refer to Eshnuna, or Ashna'ak. It also mentions Ashur, hometown of the Assyrians, and Ninua, or Nineveh, both of which will later serve as capitals of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. A region called Kur-Shubur, or Northern Mountain, also appeared in the prisoner plaque. It supplied 6,300 prisoners to the date palms of Kish, the highest number from any single place. The place named Shubur refers to Northern Mesopotamia, as do its variants, Shubar, Subir, and Subartu, and so on. Farther up the Euphrates in Syria, we see the city of Terka, which I mentioned as a candidate for the original builders of Mari. The name Nawar might refer to Nagar, the local name for Telbrak. And in northeastern Iraq, Lulubum was the homeland of the Lulubi, who would fight Naram-Sin of Agade around 2200 BCE. In southeastern Iran, your list mentions Uru'a, or Arawa. At Ebla, this name is written Arwi'u, which was the local term for a gazelle. The LGN also mentions Sabum, somewhere between Sumer and Susiana. This town was the namesake of the word Sabatum, which could refer either to a female innkeeper or to a type of musical instrument. And that is that on the LGN. Let's move now to look at settlement hierarchy. So as I mentioned last time, we talked about Kish. The alluvium can be divided into two separate geological regions. In the Sumerian-speaking south was the Delta Plain, the broad, flat expanse of rich land that enabled the growth of massive cities. We've talked about this, of course. Irrigated farmland is labor-intensive, but it enables higher grain yields than anywhere else in Mesopotamia and the fact that rivers were flowing on top of millennia of deposit sediment often meant that the level of the river was actually higher than that of the surrounding plain beyond its levees. In other words, all people had to do was dig a hole in these levee walls, and the water would flow out downhill towards the irrigation network that they had connected to their fields. So this southern ecosystem resulted in a certain kind of settlement. They needed lots of people to live in one place in order to work the fields and maintain the canals in order to grow enough food to feed all those people in one place. Because of this focus on intensive grain farming, the Sumerian cities tended to control a fairly small and densely packed agricultural hinterland. Pre-Sargonic Lagash controlled about 3,000 square kilometers of land, or a radius of about 30 kilometers, which appears to be the maximum amount of land controlled by a single metropolitan area in the south. As a result, we see nine very large Sumerian cities in the south, that is over 40 hectares, each at the center of its own settlement hierarchy. In other words, each of these large cities is surrounded by a series of smaller towns and villages, the city administration oversees the smaller towns' agricultural production and collects a certain percentage of its surplus grain to give to the larger city. And the city serves to connect these towns to the larger world via both political alliances and trade connections to other cities, each at the top of their own settlement hierarchy. These cities can sometimes be bound by political relationships. For example, a king may rule one city and place his son on a different city's throne, or one king might be the king of two kingdoms. But the cities will always remain discrete entities throughout the early dynastic period. On the other hand, Kish was located in the central Mesopotamian floodplain, farther north on the alluvium. There was still plenty of rich productive land available to be irrigated, but unlike in the south, it wasn't all concentrated in one place. The terrain in the north is less flat, with more land at a higher elevation than the river. Since northerners couldn't easily irrigate this land between the riverbanks, they used it to graze livestock. 
As a result, just as in the dry farming regions north of the alluvium, herding made up a larger portion of the local economy than it did in the south. In other words, this northern geography enabled a different form of agriculture, which in turn enabled a different settlement hierarchy. In both regions, as you might expect, the majority of sites are small villages under four hectares. In the north, we see the kind of distribution you might expect in any context. About 80 small villages, about 30 small towns, about 10 large towns, five small cities, and one big city, Kish itself. That is, each tier of the settlement hierarchy has a fairly regular fraction as many sites as a tier below it, resulting in a smooth curve if you draw it on a graph. However, as I mentioned, the south has nine large cities, but only five sites between 10 and 40 hectares. In other words, all the southerners who would be living in mid-sized settlements live in big cities, or urban areas instead. Meanwhile, the north, as I said, has one big city, that is Kish, and 14 sites between 10 and 40 hectares, including Eshnuda and Tutub along the Diala. This makes sense if you consider that the amount of contiguous farmland necessary to support a large city is much harder to find in the north. You're much more likely to find enough irrigable farmland and grazing land to support a mid-sized settlement, including the small villages on lower tiers of the settlement hierarchy in the north, than you are to find enough land to support a city over 40 hectares. In other words, if you want to maintain a big royal capital in the north, you need to come up with an institutionalized way to compel these smaller towns and villages to deliver their grain surplus up to the people of your city. We covered the formation of that kingship in the last episode on Kish, and there's no need to reiterate all that here, except to say that a powerful king in charge of an active military is one way to solve this problem. Just as northern geography produces its own settlement hierarchy, it also produces a different kind of spatial organization. Instead of one contiguous area of farmland surrounding one large city, northern kingdoms tend to rule many smaller settlements, which are themselves both less dense and spread out over a larger region. We see this pattern not only with Kish in the northern Olivium, but also with Nagar and Ebla in northern Syria, both of which we'll visit later. In 2014, Dorota Leveka described Kish as a territorial state as opposed to a city-state, that is, instead of a government centered on a particular city and its hinterland, a territorial state like Kish controls many population centers and local economies spread out across a wide area. Likewise, the kingdom of Nagar, centered on the side of Telbrak in the dry farming region of northern Syria, also rose to prominence between about 2600 and 2300 BCE. We'll have a full episode on Nagar in the near future. So Nagar ruled somewhere between 5400 and 9100 square kilometers, two to three times as much territory as Lagash. But unlike the hinterland of Lagash, much of this land was grazing pasture land unsuitable for intensive agriculture. It's difficult to assess the exact size of the territory ruled by Kish, especially since we don't know how to interpret the list of geographic names we talked about earlier. If Kish formally ruled every single territory named in the text, its territory would measure about 13,000 square kilometers, or four times as big as Lagash. Farah period records mentioned settlements from Abu Salabi in the south to Sippar in the north, that is pretty much the northern half of the alluvium. If the cities mentioned in the LGN but not in administrative texts are trade partners to Kish rather than royal territories of Kish, in other words, the kingdom's area would be closer to 10,000 square kilometers, still over three times bigger than Lagash, and bigger than the largest estimate for the kingdom of Nagar. All this is to say that the geological divide between the northern and the southern alluvium resulted in two different kinds of societies. In the south, many large cities, mostly speaking Sumerian, coordinated huge amounts of local labor to irrigate the area directly around the city. These cities always remained separate units from each other, which allowed them to shift alliances to prevent any one city from remaining dominant for too long. In the north, however, the fact that productive land was more spread out resulted in a lot of towns and villages spread out across the landscape, with Kish as the only major urban center. But enough of settlement history, let's look at archaeology. The Kish metro area comprised two major temple complexes. Upriver to the northwest was Tel Uhaimir, the household of the city god Zababa, and downriver to the southeast was Tel Ingara, known in Sumerian as Hersan Kalama, or the mountain of the civilized land. This was the household of the goddess Ishtar, whom the Sumerians called Inanna, of course. Both centers were occupied continuously from the late Uruk period onwards. We'll start with the former, since there isn't that much to say about it. Zababa was the patron god of Kish, or at least of Tel Uhamir. 
He was a warrior god mentioned on the prisoner plaque in connection with Kish's foreign campaigns, and his symbols were the griffin and the lion-headed mace. So you may see a connection between Zababa's weapon and the Shaur Ur of Ninurta, who we looked at back in season one. Zababa would later be identified with the warrior gods Ningirsu of the Lagash area, patron god of Girsu, and with Ninurta, Enlil's son from Nippur, with the talking flying mace. Zababa's temple in Kish, the E Kishib Ba, appears in some of our earliest literature. The Zami Temple Hymns, a collection of hymns from Abu Salabik, have this to say about it. O house built in plenitude, Kish, raising its head among the princely divine powers, established settlement, your great foundation cannot be scattered. Your plinth is a vast, oppressive cloud floating in the midst of the sky. Your interior is a weapon, a mace. Your right hand makes mountains tremble, your left thins out the enemy. Your prince, mighty and magnificent, a great storm overpowering the earth, inspiring great and terrifying awe. Your sovereign, the warrior Zababa, has erected a house in your precinct, O Edub, O House Kish, and taken his seat upon your dais. Eight lines, the house of Zababa in Kish. The name Zababa might be related to a Semitic word for fly. The much later biblical name, Baalzebub, literally translates to Lord of Flies. A seal from the early 2nd millennium BCE depicts Zababa alongside a fly, an eagle, and a snake. Since the latter two animals appear in the later myth about Etana, the legendary king of Kish, they may have some connection to the city's founding mythology. Moving downriver, we approach the Hursan Kalama, the household of Ishtar. This whole area stands on a single monumental platform, probably originally intended to support the temple by itself. However, during the 2500s BCE, the local authorities built two ziggurats on this platform. They originally stood at least eight meters tall, made of the same kind of Plano convex bricks as the Plano convex building, which we'll look at in a bit. Whereas most monumental structures consisted of a building on a monumental platform, these appear to be stepped towers, more similar to the more famous ziggurat from later Ur. Scenes from early dynastic cylinder seals might depict people building a tower, which may or may not depict this major construction project. Ishtar is, of course, the Semitic goddess identified with the Sumerian Inanna. At Kish, she appears as the wife of Zababa, paralleling the divine couple found at other sites, Inanna and Dumuzi, Enlil and Ninlil, Enki and Ninhursong, etc., etc. Early on in the north, as well as in Sumer, we find Ishtar identified with the planet Venus, the morning and evening star. So we're going to stay at this Hursang Kalama temple complex to Ishtar for a bit. This is, of course, the largest settlement mound at Kish. Specifically, we're going to look at the cart burials, which are exactly what they say on the tin. Certain people were buried with a four-wheeled cart, and the oxen or donkeys would have pulled that cart in life. Most of these cart burials date to around 2600 BCE, significantly earlier than the other burials we'll look at in Kish. The pottery in these graves, including a type of red-painted vase, belongs to the quote-unquote early dynastic II period in the Diala, although we've talked about the problems with that chronology. Besides the obvious sacrifice and livestock and a labor-intensive piece of hardware, these cart burials don't contain huge expenditures of wealth. The pottery is standard for Mesopotamian burials. We don't see any particularly fine pottery, let alone precious stones or metals. Although most of the organic material of the carts has decayed, we do see goads for poking the oxen and copper rain rings for tying the animals to the carts. These appear in a carving from the same period at Tutub, depicting a double rain ring on a pole on the front of the cart. One of these cart burials, four meters below the surface, contains five humans and their pottery. On the other side of a wall, we see an ox and two cartwheels, nearby a donkey and a rain ring. A different grave, six meters below the surface, contains four donkeys and a four-wheeled cart with a rain ring on a three-meter pole. Nearby are a cow skeleton and a hobbled stag. Another tomb lies underneath a ziggurat in this complex, presumably dug before the ziggurat was built. Also in these cart burials are some copper objects, like a fine dagger, axe heads, sheet metal bowls, pins, saw blades, and more rain rings. We also see beads of lapis, carnelian, and agate, and model boats of bitumen and baked clay. Moving forward in time, closer to everything else we've talked about in this episode, the richest graves at Hursan Kalama tend to be near or directly under the later monumental ziggurat platform. Burial near the ziggurat probably reflected some kind of social prestige. Several of these graves have quote-unquote mother goddess handled jars, 
In other words, jars with handles modeled in the shape of women. These are common in graves during this period, not only at Kish, Mari, and the Diala, but also in Susa. So-called fruit stands are another common pottery type from this period. They also appear in the lower Diala region. Archaeologist P.R.S. Mori describes one thus, quote, On the base are incised a tortoise and a lion, threatening a man. Above, on the stem, a hero holding a pole with a single side loop, and a snake flanking what was probably a shrine facade, end quote. An especially elaborate version, made of ivory, depicts, in Mori's words, quote, two small bearded human-headed bulls, mounted standing parallel on a pedestal supported by wheels. Only one of the bulls could be preserved, end quote. This elaborate piece of art was preserved in the Baghdad Museum until it was looted in 2003 in the wake of the American invasion of Iraq. One shell-shaped vessel marks a major advance in faience technology. Beads and other small objects made of faience by this point were common, but this is one of a rare few larger objects made from faience this early. It depicts a bowl in relief on one side, which resembles stone reliefs from Ur. One jar was found containing, to quote Mori, quote, gold, silver, copper, carnelian, onyx, and lapis lazuli beads, which may well be a true hoard robbed from graves rather than a burial deposit, end quote. In other words, someone may have been robbing these tombs after they were constructed and just found one container to put all of the treasure he was robbing in. Other graves produced bronze cosmetic sets, silver discs, and shell inlay fragments of the same type as the palace mosaic, which we'll look at in just a bit. So moving to Mound A on the same settlement mound as the palace and the Plano Convex building, which we'll look at, Cemetery A was used for just about a century, sometime during the pre-Sargonic period, overlapping with the later period we just looked at. It's home to about 150 graves with similar pottery to the Lower Diala region. The cylinder seals in a remarkably consistent Bara style have parallels in Mari and the Diala, as well as Susa in Iran. We see more fruit stands and mother goddess handled jars, like those at the other cemetery from this period. Cast bronze axe heads with a hole for the wooden shaft parallel those found in the tombs at Ur from this period, which we'll look at in a couple episodes. Two groups of kilns operated nearby from the same period as the cemetery. It's possible that pottery was manufactured on-site and maybe sold to mourners who failed to bring their own grave goods from home. We do see clay models of carts and wagons, usually with two wheels from this period, but not as grave goods and not from the cemetery. Instead, these models might be either toys or votive offerings intended for the temple. So we don't know exactly where the king of Kish lived before the 2500s BCE. He might have had a room somewhere in the temple complex of Zababa, the patron god of the kingship of Kish, but we don't have any certain evidence of a palace from earlier periods. What we do have from the 2500s BCE is the first palace at Kish, appropriately called Palace A. It was found on Mound A, nearby the Hursan Kalama temple complex to Ishtar, downriver from the separate mound to Tel Uhaimir, where the temple of Zababa is. Palace A has been described as the earliest palace in southern Mesopotamia, but there are other contenders, including at Abu Salabik and Eridu, although we talked about that in the Eridu interview episode. The one at Eridu is probably a temple, not a palace. As in other cities, including Abu Salabik, which we'll visit soon, the palace was nearby the temple that served as the city center, but physically outside the city itself. The palace at Kish was built on a monumental platform, like most major temples, over the preceding 2,000 years. No archaeological expeditions so far have dug beneath the platform, so we don't know if there are earlier layers beneath it, although there likely are, since we know Kish was occupied during the Uruk period. Unfortunately, the palace was heavily looted in the process of its destruction around 2400 BCE, so we're missing many of its original furnishings. The only surviving decoration was a frieze with inlays made of shell, limestone, mother of pearl, and bits of iron, lapis, and pink limestone. This frieze depicted martial scenes of soldiers and captives, pastoral scenes with rams, bulls, and goats, and a few wild animals like lions and leopards. The palace at Mari and the Oval Temple at Tutub had similar decorations. Both sites were in central Mesopotamia, and both could plausibly have been part of the kingdom of Kish at one point. Of course, we don't know exactly what the palace was used for since it was so thoroughly destroyed, but we do have more evidence of administration and production at a different monumental building from the same area as the palace. This is the Plano Convex Building, which I've already mentioned. As with Palace A, and as with the founding of Mari, before the PCB was built, the foundation was leveled and a layer of potsherds and ash was spread over it. This prevented moisture from seeping up through the ground and eroding the mud brick walls from the bottom up. 
The walls, of course, were built of plano convex bricks, hence the name, characteristic of the early dynastic period. The roof was made of wooden beams, on top of which was laid reed matting and then thick mud plaster, similar to the roofed houses at Sabi Abiyad that we looked at back in season one. We know this because, like at Sabi Abiyad, we found carbonized chunks of this roofing that had collapsed when the palace burned. The complex was fully surrounded and separated from the city by a massive buttressed wall, six meters or 20 feet thick. It's unclear whether or not this wall was fully symbolic, but certainly large and stable enough to serve as a real defensive fortification. One would enter through a monumental gateway decorated with triangular fragments of seashell, originally part of a mosaic with parallels at Mari and Ur. Like the frieze and the palace, this was probably destroyed when Kish was sacked. The gateway area of the PCB preserves some evidence of administrative activity. We see cylinder seals and seal impressions, weights of standard sizes, and lots of pottery. Similarly, at sites like Archaic Ur or Pre-Sargonic Ebla, a great deal of transactions took place near the gate of the city or the gate of a major administrative complex. After all, lots of people with business at the office building might need to just drop something off in exchange for a receipt. You know, there's no need to have all these people wandering around the complex itself if they don't have to. Like many early dynastic buildings, the PCB had an open courtyard area where P.R.S. Mori found a seal depicting, in his words, quote, a man paddling a boat with a human head and body as a prow and a tail twisted up and terminating in a face, end quote. This type of seal was common elsewhere in Kish, Mari, and the Lower Diala, that is, across central Mesopotamia. The administration here also oversaw a number of productive activities. We see the same brewing equipment mentioned in the Hymn to Ninkasi, which I've read on this podcast before. Similar brewing installations appear at the Oval Temple in Tutub on the Diala. Another room has two circular bitumen basins, three interlocking drains, and a big storage jar embedded in the floor, all of which might have been used for dyeing wool. Likewise, a bitumen-coated well shaft incorporated into an earlier layer of the building recalls the wells inside the palace at Mari from this time period. Spindle whorls, weaver shuttles, and related tools attest to textile production, which represented a massive allocation of labor and resources in most institutional households during this period, as at Ur, Ebla, Lagash, and so on. This probably represents at least partial government administration of the textile industry. We also see a press for either oil or wine, pieces of bitumen, two big jars of shells, likely for mosaics or other decorations, and lots of pottery. A second set of administrative materials near these craft areas suggests that part of the administrative apparatus was focused on production and storage. We don't see any big ceremonial spaces like we do with the nearby palace, nor do we see a temple sanctuary or any evidence of worship, besides it's unlikely that a temple would have been abandoned as quickly as this complex was after it was sacked. Its thick walls and fortified gate, combined with the evidence for administration, suggest that this building was primarily intended as a secular government building, fortified against violent invasion. And they were apparently right to worry because the PCB was destroyed and sacked on at least two separate occasions. It would finally be abandoned around 2400 BCE, around the same time the palace was destroyed. Last time, we looked at two kings of Kish who appear in later legends about Gilgamesh. Starting around this time, though, inscriptions across the alluvium start to refer to the deeds of various kings of Kish. The Sumerian king list, of course, has the names of many kings of Kish. I've talked before about why we can't take it literally as a historical source, but its later kings are more likely to be historical than its earlier kings are. Meh Selim, who may have reigned around 2600 BCE, left an inscription at Adab in the central alluvium, and an inscribed Mesed at Girsu in the southeast. Additionally, a later inscription from the kings of Lagash refers to his judgment in a boundary dispute between Lagash and Uma. This marks the earliest evidence of a conflict that will last over a hundred years and claim the lives of several kings and thousands of soldiers from both cities. As at later, Ebla, Nagar, and early Agadeh, Mesilim seems to content to have left local dynasties in place rather than ruling the entire area of his kingdom as one big unified state. Mesilim styled himself king of Kish, but there's no other evidence that he ruled Kish itself. Some scholars have suggested that he may have ruled a different city, perhaps Dare or the Iranian region of Awan, both of which are between Sumer and Susiana. And although Awan appears as a dynasty in the Sumerian king list, neither Dare nor Awan is as prominent in Sumerian legend as Kish would be, which might suggest that Mesilim was likely to be a real king of Kish. 
Enna'il, who ruled sometime after 2500 BCE, left an inscription commemorating military expeditions into Elam, or into the highlands of southwestern Iran. We can see hints of Kish's campaigns into the Iranian highlands. For example, the Cimmerian king list credits Enmei Baragesi with, quote-unquote, carrying off the arms of Elam, a tradition that may or may not be inspired by historical kings like Enna'il. Likewise, the Akkadian language, Him to Shamash, which we started off with, says this of the sun god, if you'll recall, quote, Shamash established soldiers in the foreign lands. He gave those lands to the traveling merchants. The traveling merchants brought lapis lazuli and silver from the foreign lands. They brought cedar from the forest. One decorated the spires of the temples with standards of boxwood, cedar, and cypress. It's a different translation from the one I used at the beginning, but you get the idea. In other words, just as during the Uruk expansion, the land-rich but resource-poor cities of the Alluvium sought access to the timber and mineral resources in the mountains, a few Sumerian kings who styled themselves kings of Kish may or may not have actually ruled Kish, including Mes Kalamdug and Mes Anepata of Ur, as well as Urza'e and Lugal Kingine Dudu of Unug. Since both those kings of Ur also ruled Unug later in life, it's not impossible that they sat atop some configuration of cities that also literally included Kish. After all, we don't know enough about the political history of either city during this period to prove that there was some other king in charge of Kish when the southern kings were claiming the title King of Kish. Ayanatum of Lagash, arguably the most important historical figure of the 25th century BCE, is perhaps best known today for commissioning the so-called Vultrastella, which commemorates his victory over Uma in the aforementioned boundary dispute. It depicts a battle scene centered on Ayanatum pointing a spear at an enemy labeled King of Kish. Torkel Jakobsen suggested that this was Kalbum, the fourth king of the second dynasty of Kish in the Sumerian king list, who may have been either Uma's ally or overlord. It may also refer to the King of Uma claiming the title of King of Kish. Either way, by defeating this quote-unquote King of Kish, Ayanatum of Lagash established himself as the foremost king in the Alluvium, after which he began to call himself the King of Kish. For example, one of his inscriptions read, quote, To Ayanatum, the Ensi of Lagash, Inanna, because she loved him, gave him the kingship of Kish, in addition to the Ensi ship of Lagash. End quote. One of the most interesting and most enigmatic purported rulers of Kish, who often appears in pop history listicles without any context, is Queen Kubaba, or Kugbao, of Kish. Her name refers to one of the major goddesses of Lagash, whose temple was closely intertwined with the queen's household. In the episodes on Lagash, I'll call this goddess Bawa. The first syllable of her name is definitely pronounced Ba, but historians disagree on how to read the second sign. So you'll see different sources render the goddess's name as Baba, Bawa, Bawu, Ba'u, etc. We don't have any inscriptions or other contemporary evidence from Kubaba's reign. She appears in the Sumerian king list as, quote, a woman tavern keeper who made firm the foundations of Kish, end quote. In that list, she rules for a hundred years in a dynasty of one. After her reign, the king list inserts a dynasty of nearby Akshak, after which Kubaba's dynasty continues with her son, Puzur-Sin, and grandson, Ur-Zababa. Ur-Zababa is the king of Kish overthrown by Sargon of Akkad in a famous legend from later periods. But the Sumerian king list inserts another six kings of Kish between Ur-Zababa and Sargon. A later chronicle account claims that Kubaba, quote, seized power over Kish from the city of Akshak, end quote. Later on, she would appear in later texts as a kind of supernatural entity connected with divination. All of this is to say that Mesopotamian historical tradition accepted Kubaba as a real monarch of Kish, even if we have no contemporary evidence for her existence. It is worth noting that, putting Kubaba aside, queens who rule in their own right aren't only rare in Mesopotamia, they're literally non-existent. You might say, what about Semiramis? And it is true that the Neo-Assyrian queen, Shamburamat, did exercise royal power over the greatest empire in history up to that point, but she did so in her capacity as a consort of the former king and the mother of his child's successor. In other words, in the official record of the kings of Assyria, her son's reign began when his father died, so that they could preserve the social fiction of male kings with unquestioned power and legitimacy. Of course, there were women who exercised considerable power at court during the 3rd millennium BCE. Bara Namtara, the wife of the mostly unremarkable King Lugalanda of Lagash, took a senior role in shoring up her kingdom's diplomatic relationships around the same time that Kubaba would have reigned. Likewise, Dusigu of Ebla exercised a fair amount of power during the childhood of her son, King Ishar Damu. 
However, both queens did so as the wife or the mother of the king, not in their own right, as Kubaba is said to. It should be noted that, relative to later periods, the third millennium marks a high point in gender parity. We see the names of many more women holding jobs and appearing in public life early on in written history. Complex urban society seems to exert a patriarchal force of its own on social relations, so that by the middle Assyrian period, at the end of the second millennium, respectable women, quote-unquote, will be expected to veil themselves when necessary and withdraw from public life entirely when possible. And any woman seen out in public without a veil will be assumed to be not a quote-unquote respectable woman. Much more on all this later, of course. One final note, just because the Sumerian king list includes a lot of non-factual historical data doesn't mean that everything it says is false. It may well be that Kubaba really was the only known Mesopotamian queen to rule in her own right, or at least the only one recorded. She also may have ruled during the minority of her son Puzor Sin. If we wanted to, we could come up with a hypothetical scenario that explains the events as recorded. Kubaba might have been a daughter from the royal family of nearby Akshak, and she might have married the King of Kish to shore up an alliance between these two families and produce a son. So if this King of Kish died and Kubaba tried to rule after his death during the minority of her son, a rival from her family in Akshak, or the nobility of Akshak, might try to unseat her and establish her own independent power in Akshak. Again, all of this is hypothetical, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. So for the first half of the third millennium, Kish was the unquestioned hegemon of central Mesopotamia. However, starting around 2600 BCE, several cities in the north started to grow stronger and to exert more power on the world around them. Most relevantly, the cities of Akshak, directly to the northeast, and Mari, up the Euphrates to the northwest, both former territories of Kish, began to challenge the supremacy of Kish. Kish does appear to have held on to some of its kingdom, specifically the Sumerian cities of Nippur, Isin, and Eresh, all in the north-central alluvium. We've talked about the possibility that Shurpak may have been part of either the kingdom of Kish and or part of a Sumerian city league. Either way, its records indicate extensive interactions between Kish and the Sumerian cities in the south, which doubtless continued after Shurpak was destroyed. In fact, it's possible that Kish itself came under the rule of one or more other kings during this period. One ruler of Kish identifies himself not as a king or a lugal, which is the Sumerian word for king, but instead as an ensi, which can refer to either a sovereign king or a governor, like a viceroy ruling in place of a higher king. The kings of Lagash traditionally called themselves ensi, even when they didn't have an overlord. The idea being that the king held conditional power in the name of the god of the city. But the kings of Kish called themselves Lugal, or king, hence the universal title, King of Kish, that, of course, we've talked about. So, if this one ruler of Kish is calling himself Ensi, he's probably ruling in another king's stead. So, who was that high king? One candidate is Zuzu of Akshak. He left an inscription at Nippur, claiming to defeat the city of Hamazi, another former territory of Kish in the far northeast. Did Zuzu defeat Kish and prevent its ruler from claiming the title of Lugal? In other words, if Zuzu of Akshak is ruling Kish, then Zuzu is the Lugal, and whoever's in charge of Kish is the Ensi of Kish. I've mentioned already that the Sumerian king list puts the dynasty of Akshak in between Queen Kubaba and her son, but this dynasty of Akshak has six names, and none of them are Zuzu. I've already mentioned another candidate, Aanatum, the conquering king of Lagash. He was a contemporary of Zuzu from the 2400s BCE, and he claimed to campaign across most of the known world at the time, from Elam in the east to Shubur in the north. In his inscriptions, he boasts of defeating enemies from Kish, Akshak, and Mari, but those battles appear to have taken place closer to Lagash. In other words, he appears to have successfully defended his kingdom against an invading northern coalition, but we don't have any evidence suggesting that Aonatum sacked the city of Kish itself. The last candidate we'll look at is Enshakushana of Unug. This is another conquering king from the south during the 2300s BCE who claimed to destroy Kish and to seize its king, Enbi Eshtar. And if the palace at Kish was still standing when Enshakushana was done with it, it was probably destroyed by Lugal Zagesi, who established himself as high king of Unug, likely in a conscious imitation of the role of the king of Kish. Now, the kind of Sumerian mirror of the northern Akkadian kingship. Lugal Zagesi captured Kish and incorporated it into his kingdom, which he held for a generation before he was defeated by Sargon. But of course, someone had to destroy the palace. As I mentioned, the palace and the nearby administrative complex, the Plano Convex building, were looted and burned. 
The destruction scattered carbonized roof beams and a double layer of burnt plaster across the premises, mixed in with ash, charcoal, and copper arrowheads, and this entire complex would be abandoned during the Sargonic period. Speaking of which, when it comes to Kish's legacy, Sargon is the elephant of the room. We don't know much about pre-Sargonic Kish, but there is a very well-known legendary tradition that Sargon started off as a cupbearer in the court of King Urzababa of Kish before he seized power in his own right. Whether or not this literally happened, Sargon did style himself King of Kish, and the scribes at Ebla appear to have called his kingdom Kish, we'll talk about that when we get to Ebla. More generally, Kish appears to have provided the precedent for one-man rule over unified kingdom spread out over a wide place, including maybe overlordship over the cities of Sumer. That is that for Kish. So earlier I mentioned the Kesh Temple Hymn, Kesh with an E. This is another text from the quote-unquote Kish tradition. So like I said, in early versions of the Kesh Temple Hymn, which were written in the far period of the 2500s, the king of Kish is mentioned performing the Burgi ritual in the local temple. This may have been written down when Kish controlled the cities of Adab and Nippur. Literary texts from Abu Salabik mention the god Zababa in connection with Enlil Sanctuary in Nippur. And like I mentioned, later versions of this text remove the reference to the king of Kish. The princely one. The princely one came forth from the house. Enlil, the princely one, came forth from the house. Enlil lifted his glance over all the lands, and the lands raised themselves to Enlil. The four corners of heaven became green for Enlil, like a garden. Kesh was positioned there for him, with head uplifted. And as Kesh lifted its head among all the lands, Enlil spoke the praises of Kesh. Obviously, Enlil is the king of the gods, the god of kingship. His temple is the Ekur in Nippur. This text also mentions Nisaba, the god of writing. She is scribed to the gods, and she is the patron goddess of Kesh with an E. Nisaba was its decision maker. With its words, she wove it intricately like a net. Written on tablets, it was held in her hands. House, platform of the land, important, fierce bull. House, Kesh, platform of the land, important, fierce bull. Growing as high as the hills, embracing the heavens. Growing as high as Akur, lifting its head among the mountains. Rooted in the Abzu, verdant like the mountains. Ashki and Nintud are gods of Kesh. These last three lines repeat at the end of every section. Will anyone else bring forth something as great as Kesh? Will any other mother ever give birth to someone as great as its hero, Ashki? Who has ever seen anyone as great as its lady, Nintud? So from here on, the text describes eight houses or temples. We won't be reading this in full, partially because it's fragmentary, partially because it's kind of boring. The first house. Good house built in a good location, floating in the heavens like a princely barge, like a holy barge furnished with a gate, like the boat of heaven, the platform of all the lands. House roaring like an ox, bellowing loudly like a breed bull. House in whose interior is the power of the land, and behind which is a life of Sumer. House, great crown reaching to the heavens. House, rainbow reaching to the heavens, whose foundations are fixed in the Abzu, whose shade covers all lands. House Kesh, green in its fruit. Will anyone else bring forth something as great as Kesh? The second house. House, at its upper end, a bison. At its lower end, a stag. At its upper end, green like a viper. At its lower end, floating on the water like a pelican. At its upper end, rising like the sun. At its lower end, spreading like the moonlight. At its upper end, warrior mace. At its lower end, a battle axe. Will anyone else bring forth something as great as Kesh? House whose fate is grandly determined by the great mountain Enlil. House, great hillside worthy of the purification rites, altering all things, without whom no decisions are made. House which gives birth to kings, which determines the destinies of the land, whose royal personages are to be revered. Frisking cattle are gathered at the house in herds. The house consumes many cattle. The house consumes many sheep. Those who sit on daises bow their necks before it. It wears a crown to vie with the boxwood tree. It spreads out to vie with the poplar tree, growing as green as the hills. House given birth by a lion, whose interior the hero has embellished. Then her song sits within like a great dragon. Nintud, the great mother, assists at birds there. Stags are gathered at the house in herds. 
Will anyone else bring forth something as great as Kesh? House whose terrace is supported by Lahama deities, house imbued with radiance and excellence, terrace relaxing abode, holy splendor of the people, house which is seemly for the foreign lands. The house whose lords are the Anuna gods, whose new Esh priests are the sacrificers of Ayana. In the house, the king places stone bowls in position. The good end priest holds the lead rope dangling. The Atu priests hold the staff. The Enkum priests bow down. The Pashesh priests beat the drum. They recite powerfully, powerfully. The bull's horn is made to growl. The drumsticks are made to thud. The singer cries out to the Allah drum. The grand sweet Tigi drum is played for him. Will anyone else bring forth something as great as Kesh? Draw near, man, to the city, to the city, but do not draw near. Draw near, man, to its hero, Ashki, but do not draw near. Draw near, man, to its lady, Nintud, but do not draw near. Praise be to well-built Kesh, O Ashki. Praise be to cherished Kesh and Nintud. (laughs) 